want you to take your Bibles with me this morning, and I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, okay? Revelation chapter 2, if you're a guest this morning, we are in a series walking through the Revelation letters. Today we come to a church that's uh, quite a challenge to us, a church called Thyatira. It's a church that, uh, well, a church that's lost its conviction church that began to turn a little bit away, not just a little bit, but significantly away from the things of God. It's a church that Jesus has some very strong words for, I think pertinent to us today. And I want to begin by maybe asking you a question, or maybe asking you if you ever thought about a question like this. Have you ever asked yourself, what really is at stake here in our country? I mean, every morning we wake up and there's something else going on in our capital. We, uh, we read in the newspaper every week things happening. We watch on TV and we hear about this happening or that happening or this life being snuffed out, that life being taken. If you read Christian news like I at least I try to tap into you read about how many abortions take place, and, and this week was a significant week in the life of our nation, wasn't it? When the highest court in the land actually felt like they had the authority to redefine the Bible, you know? And they couch it in terms like, if we don't agree that we don't like people, or we're mean to people, and yet they, they take what we believe. I mean, obviously you're at church today, so we believe there's a foundation to our nation and a foundation to our families that we call God's Word. Isn't that right? And I wonder if you ever ask the question to yourself, I wonder really what's at stake here. If we don't get this thing right, if we don't somehow get our head around what Christianity is deeper than name only. You know, everybody walks around saying, I'm a Christian. But I'm talking about more than just words. I'm talking about more than a philosophy or more than an idea. I mean, have you ever asked yourself, if we fail, parents, listen, if you and I fail, grandparents, I'm, I'm a grandparent now, grandparents, there's probably three in here, if we fail this, what's really at stake? Well, today, the letter that we're going to look at is a pretty scorching letter in a lot of ways. It's, it's positive in some ways, but it's challenging to us. And, and, and I'm just going to kind of give you some thoughts as we work our way into the passage. Thyatira was an insignificant town in the scheme of things. Out of the seven letters... Uh, the seven cities, Thyatira was really the most insignificant. Yet, Jesus reserves the longest letter to this place. It's the, not just the longest letter, but it's the most confusing, conflicting letter. When I studied it and wrote it out, I, I said, man, this could be really confusing to us. You know, I've been known to kind of confuse people. Can I get an amen, you know? And so it's entirely possible 
that uh, before you leave, you're going to go out scratching your head and say, I wonder what he was thinking, okay? It's that kind of a letter. And what we're seeing in these Revelation letters is that here in Thyatira, this letter, we see a major shift. Prior, Jesus had some commendations for all of them, and then he had some condemnations for all of them, right? But before Thyatira, it seemed like the majority were Christians and the minority were those who were anti-God. In, in the letter to Thyatira, we begin to see a little bit of a shift where those who have rejected God seem to be larger in number, and those who cling to the things of God seem to be smaller in number. So it's a, it's a change that's happening in the thought of Jesus as he gives these letters to John, who writes these letters, hands them to a courier on the Isle of Patmos, takes them beginning in Ephesus, it begins the journey of dropping them off, Okay. And the change is, is, is very significant. In fact, I believe that's why it's led many theologians to think that these letters, seven is the number of completion in the Bible. So many theologians think that these seven letters represent seven different ages in what's called the church age leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. I don't believe that, okay? I believe they were actual, church, they were actual churches then. I believe that Jesus just writes a letter to all of them, and the courier, uh, as he walks along, drops them off at the church. But because these letters show an increasing tone of wickedness, these, all of these letters in, in a cumulative sense, and because there seems to be a growing number of wickedness, and the, Jesus uh, challenging each of them, it's led many theologians to believe that these represent time periods leading up to the last one, Laodicea, which will usher in the return of the Lord Jesus, okay? You can chew on that if you want to. i tell you what I do know about Thyatira. This letter is written to a church that has lost its conviction, lost her conviction, okay? And gang, I, I want you to know something up front. If Indian Springs Baptist Church or if the church of Jesus Christ in this great nation ever loses her conviction, then what happened to this church and these churches is going to happen to us. You and I, dads, listen to me. You cannot. You have to ask yourself, what's at stake here? Because as a daddy, you cannot lose your conviction of what it means to be a dad raising children in a very challenging culture, in a very challenging age. Mothers, you must not lose your conviction. And I want to say to the church of Jesus Christ that is housed here at Indian Springs Baptist Church, the faith family at Indian Springs, we must never lose our conviction. We can wrestle on certain issues. But gang, we can't lose the core. We must never jettison what we believe is absolute truth that's given to us in the Word of God. Now, I think what I need to do is probably give you my definition of conviction, okay? And let me, let me just take a moment there, okay? 
I define conviction as that inner God-driven belief that determines your attitude and your action. Your conviction is that which is not pressured from the outside or the circumstances from the outside, but conviction is that which is God-birthed inside of you and God-driven inside of you that's going to determine how you view life and how you live life, okay? That's why this letter's important, because it answers the question, really, what's at stake here, okay? And gang, there's a lot. When the highest court in the land rejects the biblical definition of marriage, I want you to know I believe as your pastor that's pretty significant for our nation today. Conviction forces you. By conviction, that God birth thing inside of you, it forces you to live beyond your emotions. It forces you to live beyond your feelings, choosing to do what you believe is right, to live by a higher standard, God's standard, that is given to us from His Word that we call the Bible. One of the reasons we spend so much time in our children's area, in Mark in the youth area, preaching, teaching the Bible in our adult area even to teach, because we believe that's the standard. Life's not going to change with funny stories. Life's not going to change with, with all sorts of the stuff we find happening today, but lives change because of God's special revelation which is the Word of God. And it has to be that we have to be and we have to live by biblical convictions, by what is right and what is wrong and choosing to do, regardless of pressure, choosing to do what is right. Let me give you an illustration of that. Back in 1780, there was a major by the name of John Andre. Andre was an American but he was arrested as a spy for the British government. He was arrested with Benedict Arnold. The account of this major was that he was really, really a good man, that he was a gentleman. He was a model officer with impeccable manners and very popular with though, the officers in the American Revolution, the American side of the American Revolution. Everybody liked the guy. Well, when he was arrested as a spy, many of George Washington's staff went to Washington, Washington and, and asked him uh, to let him go because he's a good guy. George Washington said, listen, I, I can't let this guy go. If, I let him, if he had won, we'd have lost the war. And so he says, what you're asking is beyond my ability to do. I'm not going to do that. Well, when they realized they couldn't, change Washington's idea, they began to appeal to him because he was such a good guy, began to appeal to him that, that he ought to be shot as an officer and gentleman, not hanged as a spy. George Washington said this, he put aside emotion and feeling, he knew what was at stake, and here's what he said, regardless of personal attractiveness, after all guys, he's a spy, and a spy is a spy, and he hanged him. 
George Washington was driven by conviction because he knew what was right. And dear people, we so desperately need people like Washington. In Washington, we need them. But I want to say to you, we need them in Bryant, Arkansas. And we need them in Benton, Arkansas. We need people like Washington in Saline County. And dear people, we need, we need people like Washington at Indian Springs Baptist Church. People who know what is at stake. They're willing to stand no matter the cost, even if it means death. And the letter we're going to talk about today is a letter about a church that had many good things, had some good people, but they lost their driving conviction, and Jesus condemned them. Let me, let me just kind of tell you a little bit about Thyatira. It, like I said, it was a very insignificant town. In fact, it was a town that was, that was built to die. It was a, a town that was supposed to slow down the enemy's attack to Pergamum. We talked about Pergamum last time. And so they were really there to die. But what happened was, as Thyatira began to develop, it began to be a, a marketing and commerce center. It became known for its famous dye. And it had leather goods, wool, wool dye, and all that kind of thing. So it became a, a real big town of commerce. You remember in the book of Acts, when uh, Paul went to Philippi, he met a lady there from Thyatira, the seller of purple. Who was, what was her name? I'm going to have to ask the kids, aren't I? Lydia, or Lydia, however you want to pronounce her, okay? Well, Thyatira became known as a big commerce center, became known in the textile industry. The, the unique thing about Thyatira was that, that if you were going to work in one of these industries, whether it's leather or wool or clothing, whatever it is, you had to join a guild there. We would call that a union. And you couldn't work unless you joined the union, Okay. Now, the problem with that for Christians wasn't so much the joining of a union, but the problem for Christians was that each one of these unions was tied to a pagan god. Every union or every guild had their pagan god. And so to join a guild required you to worship the pagan god at the appointed time. A couple things that come out of the reading was that one of the things they did was they ate meat that was sacrificed to idols. And that was, for Christians back then, it was abhorrent. Now, we know there's no such thing as an idol. The Bible, different places, wrestles with that. That may not have been all that bad because there's no such thing as an idol. But the fact is, when they were eating the false, the meat to the false idol, they were worshiping or called themselves worshiping. What was worse than that was this, that part of the pagan practice of the guild was to commit acts of immorality. It was a major problem for them. And the question, what is a Christian to do? I mean, if you don't join the guild and if you don't participate in some of the acts, then you have no job. If you don't have any job, how do you feed your family? Do you understand the tension? And listen, it's big stuff. It was a major, major problem. What is a Christian to do? Do you compromise? Do you soften your conviction? Do you tolerate Satan's lie? I want to tell you, gang, tough stuff. What would Jesus say? 
church. We got mail this morning. Would you stand in honor of God's word? Revelation chapter 2, beginning verse 18 through verse 29. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like burnished bronze, says this. And notice he only gives one verse of commendation. I know your deeds, your love, faith, service, perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. These virtues, there was some praise here. But he said, I, Jesus said, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, that they may commit acts of immorality, and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness. Gang, do you think perhaps that some of these diseases, especially the STDs that we're seeing in our schools today, Gina, you're a nurse. Is it perhaps some of all this proliferation of all these different diseases is as a result of a nation that has basically turned their back and rejected God? That's just a thought to chew on, huh? I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery wear their into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they, are call, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, which I think is the key to this whole letter, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds unto the end to him, I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, not all do, but those who have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, for the next few moments, I pray you'll help me bring clarity to a very challenging and conflicting letter so that my people may understand something about your word today and leave this place better than when they came. For the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Thanks. Be seated and keep your Bible open, please. In fact, what I want to do is I want us to begin in verse 18 this morning. And I want to look at the description that Jesus gives to himself. Now, that's pretty significant, gang. It's not John talking about Jesus. It's not Paul describing Jesus. But Jesus is giving a self-description of himself, okay? What I want you to realize, this is the only place in the book of Revelation that Jesus entitles himself the Son of God. It's the only place you're going to find it. Earlier... He called himself the Son of Man. That indicated his 
his uh, uh, ministry of a high priest. It indicates his coming to the aid of those who are suffering, him caring about those who are hurting and all of that. But here Jesus, for the first time and the only time in this book, calls himself the Son of God. He describes himself as God the Judge, God who is deity. In fact, if you look quickly in verse uh, 23, you'll see that he, the Bible says, he searches the mind and the heart of the church. Jesus knows not just what they were facing on the outside of the circumstances and the pressure to conform and to give in. What Jesus is saying, gang, listen, I know the pressure that you're under. I know the problems you're incurring, but I also know what's going on inside of your heart. I know what's happening inside of you, which is the real you. He describes himself as eyes as a flame of fire with laser-like vision. Nothing can escape his omniscience. I want you to know that our God is all-knowing. He knows what tomorrow's going to bring you. He knows the pressure you're going to get at work. But he knows what's stirring inside of your heart just like he knew them back then. Nothing can be disguised. Nothing can be covered up from the Lord Jesus. He describes himself with feet like burnished bronze, totally pure and holy. He is a God that tramples out iniquity. Not only is he omniscient, but he's wholly omnipotent. He's perfect in power and righteousness. He's complete in honor and justice. And beloved, I want you to know that he's stronger and mightier than any Jezebel who has risen up through the ages that take their stand and try to lead God's elect astray. He's greater than any national leader that has ever arisen on the scene, stayed for a while, and like a snap of God's finger, are no more. In Thyatira, Jesus came not to minister to the people. We're seeing Jesus now begin to arise as the morning star, as the great judge, and how terrible the judgment is of a thrice holy God. And dear church, we don't want, and dear church, we don't want our nation to experience this kind of judgment. Israel did, and Israel fell. While the church in Thyatira had a few, and he commends them, we'll look at it. Most of them had went on living their lives, justifying their sin, living as if there wasn't any God. And God's patience ran out on them. Now look at verse 8, 19 for just a moment. Here's the only praise he gives them. He says, hey, you've got some pretty good deeds. And he describes their deeds in a good way. Love. I want to tell you, love's a good thing for a church. We've talked about that in our study, right? A church ought to be a church of love. He commends them for that. He commends them for their faith. They ought to have a belief that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God, and He commends them for that. He talks about their service. If there's one thing we're good at here is running with our tongues hung out, huh? I mean, we just got out of Camp Jam, and two weeks later, Lisa threw us right back into VBC. We're good at service. 
A church ought to, not only are we good within the walls of the church, but we're good outside the walls. We have three ladies we'll be praying for a little bit later that are on their way to Africa. We, we go to Benton Care Center. We do a lot of things outside the walls of the church that are commendable. Jesus commends them for that. Perseverance. They don't quit. He says, in fact, he says, you're even getting a little better at it. See? But that's all he says. And the reason he does is because they have a fatal flaw. They tolerated a Jezebel. The problem in a general sense is they wouldn't confront evil. They wouldn't deal with, with that which was evil. Look at verse 20 through 23. I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. She calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and leads my bond servants astray. So they, they even commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I don't know. The first service said I didn't say this, so I probably didn't. But I should have said this at the very beginning of our study. Whatever your bed of sin is, then generally that will be your bed of suffering. Did I say that when we started our study? Do you even? I don't remember what I preached last week, so I should have said it. If I didn't, you should have known it anyway, okay? Let me repeat it, okay? Whatever your bed of, your bed of sin is, that will generally be your bed of suffering. This lady in Thyatira was not named Jezebel. Jesus give her, gives her that name because she represents a lady in the Old Testament who was married to a wicked, weak king, King Ahab. And you know the story of Jezebel. I mean, you don't name your daughter Je You name your daughter Sue now. I've never known a parent say, I think I'll name her Jezebel. Why? Well, because Jezebel was that person in the Old Testament, now depicted in Thyatira, who took a group of people and led that group of people to commit acts of immorality. And I'll tell you, somehow... And these people knew what happened, and somehow the church let history repeat itself. And the question I had, how does that happen? How does a church who is full of love and perseverance and faith, and how do you let a Jezebel stand up and lead a group of people astray? Well, I've got some things for you to think about. Number one, when you lose conviction. When you lose that inner drive of what is right and wrong. When you lose the Holy Spirit's drive that I'm going to live outside of emotion and outside of passion and I'm going to live this way because there's a higher standard in my life and that higher standard is the Word of God. And I'm going to let the Word of God Dictate how I live my life, how I raise my kids, what I will or will not do, what I will or will not spend. When you lose that conviction, Jezebels are all around. When you set aside righteousness, when you compromise biblical truth like the leaders of our nation have done. Gang, listen, when you have a president that rejects biblical truth, when you have a Congress that sets aside biblical truth, when you have a justice system that will take a totally, radically opposite view than the Word of God, then the Jezebels begin to move in. 
and lead a people astray. When God's church fails to live in godliness and stand for truth, I want you to know that the Jezebels are all around, around every corner. They're sitting on the high lines, waiting, the high wire looking, and waiting to swoop in and eat their prey. Now I have to tell you something I struggled with with this letter, and I just sat there in a stupor for a while. After a while, I just jotted this down. Where are the men? Guys? Jezebel. Where where are the men here? Guys, if God expects us to lead our family, you agree with that? Yeah, you do. Say amen, guys. Sure you do. It's God's design. It has nothing to do with equality. And we're all equal in the sight of God. If God expects the men to lead the church, and you agree with that, don't you guys? I mean, I think we do. I do, whether you want to or not, okay? Yeah. I mean, that's... if. Listen, where are the men here? Guys, you need to chew on that. As you think about really what's at stake for my family, what's really at stake for my church, Where are the men? Did you notice that God gave her time to repent and she refused and the weak folks with her? But they didn't. And finally, God's patience ran out. God's a patient God, long-suffering God, the Bible tells us. But there's a point at which God says, enough is enough. As a parent, you ever said that to your kid? We had our grandkids with us this week. It was fun watching Jeff and Amy. Paula said, they're just reliving. We get the joy of them doing what we used to say to them. You do that one more time, you did, dude. You know? Huh? Caleb, one more time, boy. Of course, he'll look at him and do it. And of course, what does his daddy have to do? Oh, it's great joy. I got to watch him whip his boy. Flashback, deja vu, you know? Well, listen, we as parents are patient, are we not? Sure we are. But at some point, little Johnny takes one step too far and we call his hand on it. That's what God was doing here. Oh, come on, repent, people. Repent. But they chose not to. And God's patient ran out. When God's patient runs out, what's left? God's judgment. Notice what he says. I'll cast her and those with her into great tribulation. I will kill her children with pest. You know how many abortions, dear people? What, what was, we were yesterday, 50 million? Is that close enough? I will kill her children. Kids are, kids are being killed. Does that register with you at all? With pestilence. And all will know that I'm omniscient. I know everything and I can do anything. Now, gang, here's where it gets a little complicated, so you gotta hang with me. The question is raised well, what was she teaching? I mean, eating meat sacrificed to idols, committing acts, what is it? Most theologians, I agree with, most theologians said that she was teaching what's called dualism. And I want you to listen with me. Don't don't lose me here and then I'll then I'll be through, okay? Dualism says that there's a difference 
in the body and the spirit. Dualism says the spirit is good, but the body or the flesh is bad. Dualism says that God only cares about the body, I mean only cares about the spirit, not the body. So don't worry about the body. So go ahead and join the guilds. Go ahead and eat the meat. And go ahead and commit the acts of immorality because God doesn't really care about the body. All God cares about is the spirit. And I want to tell you, that's wrong. That's a lie. The Bible does care about the body. We're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't the Bible say that? Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Do you, do you guys remember, some of you are too young, but most of you, I know Rich remembers, when Bill Clinton was president. You remember Billy Boy? Yeah, he's from Arkansas. We can talk about him, okay? You remember when Bill messed up and everybody came out with this idea, wait a minute. What the boy does in private and what he does in public is different. You remember that? Oh, yeah. You know? We don't care what he does in private just as long as he takes care of us in public. That's dualism. That's saying there's a distinction in life. Now, gang, listen. That's a lie from Satan. What you are in private is who you are, you see. God cares about the spirit and the body. There's no dualism here when it comes to the things of God, okay? The Jezebels always say, go ahead. In fact, the Jezebels say, hey, go ahead and eat and go ahead and involve yourself in that because not only does God not, do not, God does not care, but it's going to give you an opportunity to involve yourself in their life and you can actually be a witness for Jesus. And that's a lie as well. Who you run with is who you end up smelling like, end up doing. One of the things as parents you teach your kid, don't you run with so When Jeff was growing up, there was a boy that we wouldn't let Jeff pray, play with. I want to tell you, the boy grew up and now he's a preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. You see. But at that point, the guy was, I don't want my boy hanging out with him. Okay. And so she was saying, hey, just go ahead, you can become a witness of Jesus for them. But it doesn't work. The Jezebels always say, go ahead. But according to this letter, God kills the Jezebels and her followers, and perhaps even worse, the children. Just tolerate it. Compromise it. Rationalize it. But I want to tell you something. The Jezebels of the world will never tell you that the Lord Jesus has eyes like fire and feet like burnished bronze, that he's the God of justice. And today, guys and gals and dudes and dudettes, you need to be aware of Jesus' self-description of himself, okay? Well, what's his promise? Well, look at verse 24 and 25, and then we'll be gone, okay? But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who don't hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Let me take apart those two words, hold fast, for a moment, okay? The words hold fast actually is one word, and it, the idea is to get a grip and then hold on, okay? 
Now, by get a grip, <coughs> excuse me, by, by get a grip, it means to get your head around it. In other words, to understand it, to get a sense which way the wind's blowing or which way the current's flowing. And so, first of all, it means let's get our head around this. We need to understand this, and then we've got to hold on to it, and we've got to hold on to it until Jesus comes back. And Jesus says to them, listen, you don't have any authority now. I understand. And you've got to join this guild or not join this guild and lose your job. But there's coming a day that I'm going to give you authority. The word rule, by the way, in verse 27 means a shepherd. So somehow in God's eyes somewhere, we're going to be helping shepherd the flock with him. I said earlier that I think 20, verse 25 is the key. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast. What you have. Hold fast till I come. And I think the question for us today, as we struggle with what's at stake, is the question of what I'm holding on to. In fact, I'd like to ask it to you for a moment to consider. Who are you holding on to? Or what are you holding on to? See? Because you see, what you're holding on to may just very well determine where you spend eternity. No? I mean, if I'm holding on to the things of the world, they're going to rust and decay one day, aren't they? But if I'm really holding on to Jesus Christ, if I'm holding on to His eternal Word, then I'll be okay no matter what happens. Even if I lose the job by refusing the guild. Even if I struggle feeding my family with some of the basic necessities of life. If I've got Jesus, then ultimately my life throughout all of eternity is going to be so far in excess of anything this world could offer. So I guess my question to you is who or what are you holding on to? And if it's not Jesus, then you might find yourself deceived by a Jezebel that simply says, go ahead, enjoy it, tomorrow you die. Well, that part's right, tomorrow you die. But you never enjoy something that comes from Jezebel. Well, let's pray. Stu and our team's going to come.